Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, we welcome back PC Gamers, Evan Lotti. Hey there, Rob. And we're also joined once again by designer and writer, Zolivir Nelson. Hey, everyone. And now college student, correct? Yeah, newly inducted college student on top of my already uh, unreasonable workload. It's exciting. It's fun. I haven't slept. Yeah, it's now, and I'm just imagining a very like uh, Rodney Dangerfield esque like back to school uh, mis- misadventure you're having uh, on top of the rest of your on the top of the rest of your duties. Uh, anyway, tonight we are going deep undercover with Phantom Doctrine, a Cold War espionage tactics game by Creative Forge Games. And Evan, you and I were both reviewing this, and we exchanged a couple texts, and I said that I was having. Just a hellish time, like I like many many days into my time with this game, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like literally, yeah. with a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you. Like, did I like this? Was this good? Uh, and you you told me you were like, uh, dude, it's gonna take you, but it, it's gonna take about twenty hours uh, before you really know how you feel about this game. Uh, so first. You were uncannily on the money with that prediction. Uh, like, literally, the, the moment where I was like, okay, I think I'm done here. I exited, and it was like 19 hours uh, on the Steam time played uh, clock. Uh, but second, so what is Phantom Doctrine, and why is it so hard to get a read on it? Yeah. This is a strange game to talk about, and I really grappled with it a lot in my review. I, it took me probably a week and a half to review this game, which is just an unusual amount of time. You know, at a baseline, it's an XCOM-style turn-based strategy game where you're managing a squad of agents, spies, operatives, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, you're taking turns on XCOM-sized-ish um, gridded boards, you know, moving one unit at a time. These units are carrying weapons. They have, you know, perks and abilities of a sort that they can accumulate over time. They're leveling up. You're accumulating more gear through research of a kind over the course of a 40-hour campaign against a conspiracy group called Beholder or the Beholder Initiative who, you know, while they're not the aliens of XCOM, you know, sort of are playing the same role within the metagame, and they're playing this, this, this sort of chess game against you. If, if you played Xenonauts, the metagame is actually a lot like that in terms of you're sort of moving stuff around on a global map, uh, allocating resources and stuff like that. And yeah, the whole game is set in the Cold War of you know 1983. So while the Russians themselves are not the enemy, you can actually play as a former KGB agent, both you and your opponent in the game are sort of independent groups caught up in this struggle between the U.S. And, and the USSR. So interesting choice there that I actually liked. But yeah, at a baseline, uh, you know, you're sending these units, uh, this collection of agents. You know, you might accumulate thirty or forty agents in the game on your roster by the end game. Um, so plenty of room for like A, B, and C teams there. Um, and, and you're bringing those guys back to a sort of secret hideout that much like XCOM has these kind of different ant, style, ant farm style rooms that you're um, managing, you know, those units within your, you have an infirmary, you have sort of a research room, you have a workshop, you're crafting more gear. So 
that that's you know like you said that's where we start as a baseline but there are some like really important differences like the fact that you can complete missions without hurting anybody at all and without firing a shot without you know punching any enemies or anything like that you can get in and get out almost in the style of a hitman game with a lot less complexity so there's plenty here for us to dig into it's um it's it's a weird one it's a very there are a lot of moving parts in this game and there are a lot of different things this game is trying to do um but i wouldn't go so far as to say like it's a particularly complicated game in a lot of ways like it's a very busy game uh but i think if you sort of break it down into, into its constituent parts uh a lot of it's pretty straightforward and some of that simplicity i think works to its great advantage and there are some places that i think the simplicity of phantom doctrine really bites it in the ass um and particularly when it comes to combat which we'll we'll, we'll get to um but it is this this was a very difficult game to review and and sort out my my feelings about and one of the uh i think one of the real hurdles i had with that is it's a slow burn like this game has a tutorial and then it has kind of a extended prologue that i kept sort of wondering like is this the game am i in it now like have we have we actually started uh Zalvir, I'm curious what you what you made of that. Uh, you know how how you found the early early stages of this game, and uh, what worked well for you, and and what kind of left you scratching your head. The strange thing about Phantom Doctrine, especially because I interviewed the lead uh, designer, the studio head, uh, several times before the game came out, um, is. That it has, as you mentioned, all of these moving parts. It's a very busy game. You can get into a situation where uh, you've trained a double agent, but that double agent has actually been brainwashed by the opposite side. So when you trigger your double agent, the double agent actually goes against you and all this interesting stuff theoretically should happen. Uh, and you're told that that's sort of the end game you're working towards, these interesting stories. But it has the very uh, Middle Earth, Shadow of Mordor, Shadow of War problem where all of those interesting capabilities occur um, if things go wrong. Namely, if you are not playing at an optimal level, if you're just playing the game normally, it's actually very likely, as you said, that the simplicity of the game that can work in its favor from an accessibility standpoint actually means that many of the exciting... Uh, subterfuge and counter-subterfuge moments don't actually pop up and in the early game that's pretty dang obvious uh and the problem is quite boggling especially in contrast to the studio's previous game um hard west which i'm sure we'll get to I later totally on i missed that one so i actually i would love to get in, love for you to get into it now because hard west was a game that i think sat on the three moves ahead whiteboard for like 18 months like and we would just get around like should we Talk about Hard West, and like I think the only person who ever actually played it was uh, Rowan Kaiser, and so we, the idea just ended up kind of lapsing. I'm curious, is there like when you play this game, are you like, mm, yep, I see that design lineage, or is this a complete departure? There is an incredibly interesting point to be made here. Then, so what I was going to say about the early moments of Phantom Doctrine is uh, in the very one of the very first missions you encounter as a CIA agent. This isn't too spoilery, but you're told, hey, your secondary objective is not to get caught. And I was very 
pleasantly surprised to find that I could play through that entire mission stealthily, not alert, set off any alarms, not do anything crazy. Um, midway through the mission, something happens, and you're told, hey, your secondary objective is to get into the bunker, which requires you to violate your earlier secondary objective uh, not to get caught. And I thought, hey, is this an interesting choice moment here? Is this uh, information going to prove critical for my uh, for the later foundation of the campaign? Is this going to be something that like I kick myself for later on or opens up an, introduce, uh, an interesting possibility? Come to find, I avoid the information. And it turns out that the secondary objective I was originally given didn't turn out to be valid at all. Uh, it didn't even register that as a secondary objective. Um, it just said, oh, you didn't get the information from the bunker. And it shrugged its shoulders and it moved on. It's a game of immaculate, evocative set dressing that doesn't pay off on those possibilities. Uh, which is really surprising in comparison, as I said, to Hard West. I got into Hard West because I was like, XCOM and Weird West and oh also there's a DLC that's really cheap where you play as like a freed slave woman with a bionic arm and eldritch influences. Yeah, aren't there like demons in that game? Yes. Wait, okay. I have no idea what this game is. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was like I thought it's it was not just cowboys. XCOM. Okay. It's not just cowboys. So Hard West is uh to use a very quick X plus Y equals Z formula. It is XCOM uh, meets Fallen London uh, meets Old West mythology uh, meets choice-based interactive narrative fiction uh, stuffed into this quite pleasing tactical box. And you just like lay the perfect Rob Zachney trap, by the way. Like this is just <laughs> like put, you know, just like put the put the box with the stick under it. Uh, you know, fall in London tactics. Okay, sure, I'll climb under there. Yeah, so when you start the game, it, you actually don't play a strategy portion for a significant period of time. You're introduced to the world. Uh, your hard scrabble farmers coming to the west. You have a certain amount of time to establish yourselves. You go through this portion where you're sort of building up your uh, your vision of the world and what you're going to do, prospecting in various areas, meeting a mysterious clothed man at the crossroads who offers you a strange deal. Uh, and all of these sections actually serve to perform a, basically an elaborate uh, production-efficient character creator. You get all these traits associated with your character, like uh, untouchable, because you made that deal with the devil, etc., and then you're, when you're launched into these situations, these missions proper, you have all these bespoke scenarios based, again, off of these legends of the West. You build up your squad. You're going through these strange situations with demons and with humans and with the interaction between uh, the myth of the West and the uh, unfortunate reality. And suddenly you get into the mission map and it's like, boom, you're surrounded on all three sides. When you shoot a certain type of gun at a metal object, it can ping off and hit someone else. And suddenly you're off to the races. You're using your shotgun guy to take out a whole bunch of people behind breakable cover. You're using your uh, trick shooter to bounce a bullet off of like three walls to hit a sniper. Um, you, it takes all of that set dressing and uses it to create these scenarios where that set dressing pays off. Uh, and Phantom Doctrine is a much bigger game with a much larger potential uh, range of scenarios and... Uh, a greater audience and yet all of that set dressing actually doesn't get used in as efficient a way as hard west so as soon as i was 
playing and comparing the two games, it felt odd. It's by the same team, it's of the same lineage, and yet um, so much of what attracted me to the first game, so much of what made me believe that the, their take on the Cold War would be uh, incredible actually didn't come through in the final product, which is decent, but could have been so much more. Yeah, there, there's some amazing ideas here. And it, if anything, I walked away 40 hours in this game with a sense that A, there needs to be way more spy games than there are, are right now. And B, there's so much potential in particular in this turn-based context, right? Because, I mean, like you were saying earlier, I found myself really wanting... I mean, the, the game is most interesting when things go wrong, just just to reflect what you what you said. And I found myself wanting more and more of those situations. Let me Let me walk you through what was probably the most interesting thing I had happen to one of my agents. And it's all, you know, it's all driven by the game systems. And, but unfortunately, like this only happened a couple times throughout, throughout the, those 40 hours. So I had an agent called Wildfire and eventually I came upon this story event. So there are these kind of like text pop-ups that can happen during the campaign, just on the metagame map. And they sort of give you a short narrative plot to, to pick like an ABC choice between. Uh, so in this case, an informant, like an off-screen NPC somewhere who I would never encounter, was being interrogated about Agent Wildfire. So was, her kind of identity was in, in, in danger. And I had to choose between doing nothing, dismissing her from my secret cabal, or paying, I, I guess, this in, interrogator or somebody else to erase traces of... Um, her exposed identity. So I didn't actually have enough money at the time to do the third one, so I just picked it doing nothing. As a consequence of that, the heat on wildfire, which is sort of like every agent has a measurement of how exposed they are, right? And if their heat goes up to 100, they, their identity is in fact exposed. So her heat goes up to 100. So then I have to go into my forger room in, in my base and change her identity, which is itself is like a really cool intersection of the thematics and the mechanics right because this game has a character creator which is neat it's not amazing and actually the character art is a little underwhelming but like there's a randomizer button here right and just mashing that randomizer button in the context of being in a secret spy base just feels like you're sticking your hand into like a bucket of passports and just pulling out whatever you know is israel czech republic whatever you know mexico i don't care let's let's just change you so anyway she's now codename mantis right she's no longer wildfire forget about that and that itself like feels really cool like i have to forget this person i have to like learn a new person i have to i can change their clothing there's kind of some some fun just little personal choices you can make there anyway eventually i send her on like some other mission you can you can send your agents around the globe to kind of do these um little errands basically that aren't um combat missions you have to send them to like check out this um this point, this you know, what's happening in Beijing, what's happening in London right now, and um, it'll reveal like informants, and that leads to you gaining intel, which we can talk about a little bit later. Uh, so anyway, then I get this other alert that that quote unquote the Chinese have it in for her, and I can choose to to mount a rescue operation, which I do. It's a thousand dollars, which is a lot for me at the time. It fails, and then she disappears. Okay, cool, great. She's so she's like unaccounted for. I can't find her or control her. She's just sort of like floating in in the world map as as far as the game's expressing it to me. Then she comes back 
And then I get a, you know, a note that, oh, by the way, she told them everything. What do you want to do with her now? <laughs> right. And I have three more choices, which is let her go, kill her, or basically torture her um, in, in my sort of designated torture room in my base for, to find out what she knew um, or what she told them. Your, exactly. your special room. K-Ultra, uh, as it's known. So I choose, I don't know, I choose to let her go. If it was like the most, the more interesting choice, I want to, I want to sort of test the systems of the game in this case. So now she's, she's loose in the world again, kind of unaccounted for. And my, my danger, which is sort of a, a measurement of how close Beholder is to discovering where your base is, goes up by 50. Okay, so <laughs> this is getting really long at this point, but it's, okay, eventually she comes back she she's asking me for money she's like she shows up at this doorstep of my base and again i can choose either kill her or refuse or pay her i pay her she comes back again later asks for more money i give it to her again and eventually she rejoins my team at this point i'm like okay her cover has to be blown she has to like i just have to assume that she's been brainwashed or turned by the enemy i have to just assume the worst has happened because she's sort of like left and come back left and come back which is something that can happen to your agents and actually something you can do if you capture enemy agents in the game. You can sort of use the same tools against them, which I think is a really cool way of um, you know, designing that aspect of the game. Anyway, eventually we, we go on a base mission. I bring her on like this really important base mission. It's, it's not like a, a mission you can really approach with stealth. You have to kill like usually about eight or nine agents that are just spread across the, uh, the map. Um, it's, a, it's a, like a really challenging mission for me at this point in the game. She gets, ki- she gets killed by the final agent that I'm fighting against. She gets, and she's bleeding out there. And I've already called the extract. There, there's sort of like a, um, there's no time limits on Phantom Doctrine's missions, but once you sort of phone for your extract vehicle, um, you're punished if you don't make it there in time. It sort of shows up three turns later, typically, and you have to get to this specific, specific extraction zone. And if you don't get there in time, you're you're punished. So you'd say it shows up three moves ahead? <laughs> Very good. How dare you, sir? <laughs> okay, so I'm you know I'm in this really interesting scenario where it's like Agent Wildfire. She fought bravely to against like the final enemy agent in the game, who I eventually kill. And I'm, I'm I'm looking at her there, bleeding out. And I can choose to have one of my other characters pick her up and like very slowly run to the extract as like reinforcements are coming in. It gets more dangerous, you know. So I can rescue her, rescue her. But again, she might be in a, you know, she might be totally compromised. I'm not sure. Um, so I, I just decide to leave her there, let her bleed out, and sort of let her have this heroic death while possibly thinking I might have been solving a problem for myself, right? Because she could have been uh, a double agent. I, I guess I won't ever know for sure, but I kind of like the, the complexity of that. So that's a situation, right, that a game like XCOM will never give me. You know, I can't think of another game that through its systems produces that kind of weird, uneven you know, systemic feeling of betrayal, emergent betrayal, whatever you want to call it, uh, through this one character. Um, now, without without monopolizing the discussion, I think we should definitely talk about the way uh, agents and characters are handled in the game, because I found myself overall really disappointed by how much the game asks of you to understand who these people are and kind of 
even just in combat, what their specializations are and stuff like that. But this was at least a specific moment that, you know, like we were saying early on in this conversation, Rob, really convinced me of like, wow, there's something here behind this game. Like, you know, when its systems are all talking to each other and it's able to build up this like emergent, cool narrative that you feel ownership over, it's it's pretty powerful um, as long as you're buying into it and kind of, you know, putting yourself into it as much as the game is is asking of you. Hearing that story, um, it suddenly occurs to me, I think I realized why I bounced off so hard against this game in comparison to Hard West. And I think it has to do with a measure of time. That story you told about Agent Wildfire, who became Codename Mantis, who became a traitor, or was she? Did it matter in the end? Uh, that's fascinating, but it could not have played out in anything shorter than that 20, 40 hour span of time. Um, Hard West, on the other hand, when it gave you all those solutions, it, did, it was a much less expensive game and it was apparent in several ways. But it was basically like, okay, it's the Wild West. Things are weird. Your family died. Go. And it dropped and it had to shove you into these climactic, interesting moments um as soon as possible it had to get you invested as soon as possible it had to uh pay off on its promise of a of a true weird west uh as soon as possible so that you'd continue playing the game phantom doctrine on the other hand kind of takes that for granted and wants to let its system simmer but because you don't have that initial urgency that initial buy-in um you do you can end up in sort of this spiral of okay is this the game yet, or am I simply um, going through the motions of playing Phantom Doctrine? Uh, I don't know if you heard the story of the people for Evolve uh, who were making Evolve, but near the end of development, uh, they were beta testing the game, and one of their developers walked into the room with this disturbing revelation. He said, okay, I think we've been beta testing it wrong. I think it's going to become really apparent in a couple of months. Because we haven't been actually playing the game to win. We've been role-playing what it was like to play Evolve. We haven't been actually playing the systems. We haven't actually been doing the thing. Uh, and as soon as it was exposed to the players, it was like obvious. Like, oh, we were playing the interesting part of our systems. We weren't playing the actual nuts and bolts mindset of a player saying, hey, instead of avoiding all this interesting stuff, why don't I just shoot someone in the face? Uh, and I think that's a big problem that Phantom Doctrine has. It's really exciting to role-play in your mind all the steps of Phantom Doctrine, all the possibilities, but in practice, it so often comes down to these underwhelming hit-next-turn options, knock out a guy, drag him away, hit-next-turn. Absolutely. There's, there's a couple things there. I think one is that Phantom Doctrine does not feel like an author you trust, right? Like you're you're turning the pages and you're like, is this story actually going anywhere? Like, is this just like is this is this a story or is it just a, a lot of events strung together? Right? Um, my friend Sean Andrich over Games of the Jobs uh, messaged me one night while we were both playing the game, and he was like, I feel like I'm going on a series of first dates with this game. Um, and that, like, I knew exactly what he meant. It was like, you know, it's all fine, but it's not, it, it never feel. it rarely feels like, like it is really building toward, any, toward anything. So like the story of that, uh, 
prodigal agent could be a great story uh, and, and is a cool story. But I saw so many just like threads that took shape and then were left dangling over the course of, of my campaign. And I was like, was, was something supposed to happen there? Did that, did that mean anything? Uh, like I was really excited when one of my early agents, uh, codenamed bleach, uh, she was a, uh, Lebanese, a Lebanese woman I rescued from an interrogation room. And she was also a Vietnam veteran, uh, which I figure is a cool and weird backstory. And I, I, given that I was playing uh, from the Soviet side, uh, I'm kind of curious, like what sort of international freedom fighter she was. And she had a vendetta against somebody and I backed her in this vendetta. And I was like, yeah, take whatever time you need go kill your old handler or whatever. And she came back and like, she was loyal. Uh, and she was the one character I would always know, like could not be turned against me. Uh, and so bleach became like almost my alter ego. Uh, Cause you have your own player character. And then bleach was my alternate. Like if bleach is on a mission, at least there's one character, you know, is, is going to be reliable. But I often found I didn't need to worry about whether or not people were going to be reliable because Phantom Doctrine just did not throw that many curveballs at me. And not just in terms of those larger issues of like who's a traitor, who's a double agent, who's been brainwashed, but also just in the um if you want to play, and this this I think is very much to the the uh to, to Zolivir's point about the experience that the Evolve team had uh with their game, if you just want to play this in the most boring ass uh optimal safe risk averse way phantom doctrine will reward you for doing that like it will do nothing to discourage you from just being this ice cold boring pragmatist and especially if you're just patient like hey do you want to take a few extra turns to get everyone set up so you just like murder everybody and then just sort of breeze to the objective you can do that and the first couple times you do it it feels it felt kind of awesome to me uh it felt really good when i sort of go loud in a mission and like just bodies are dropping right and left it feels very much like that um you know jason Bourne just demolishing the swiss police uh barely knowing you know how or why he did it at first it was cool and then it's i started to realize like I wasn't being made to adjust my tactics or even my weapon loadouts. Like my characters, like were basically doing the same shit with the most basic weapons they had, uh, as they were several levels later, uh, with supposedly better gear, like the same stuff was working. Nothing was different. Yeah. It, it's a huge issue in the combat design, how powerful melee is. So we should mention, you know, we call this next come style game. There's no percentage to hit which is crazy in a way like in, instead your characters have this resource called awareness that depletes if they successfully dodge an attack. And then there are like grazed um, hits that sort of do a very small percentage of damage. Often there's body armor, which um, is like damage resistance. So those systems all work together, but again, the way melee is balanced is a huge issue. And I, I really wish they would have just taken a different route. So as long as you have more hit points than a character, any character, enemy agent, civilian, police officer, um, you know, military guy on the map, you can instantly knock them out without fail. 
and that becomes insanely powerful in, 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 a, in a game where stealth is you know pretty op, pretty optimized and as a, as a technique and there's no time limit often right so i can just walk up to some, somebody get behind them take my time position all my guys wait for the civilian who's in the room to look the other way and you know single button they're they're ko'd and their awareness cones are very like blinders on like so you can basically just walk up to somebody from the side and just like knock them out and no alarm is raised and uh the other the other thing i'd say is the game hints it that, that it's pushing back on this. It says, like, if, for instance, you're going around and knocking a bunch of people out and stashing the bodies somewhere, uh, if you do that, a, like, a few times in a mission, but you haven't broken stealth, uh, you get word that, like, enemy agents are aware that something is amiss. Like, they're alerted and they're beginning to patrol more aggressively, etc. And basically, yes, the enemy agents will start moving, and they are more dangerous, they have more hit points, they have more abilities than the bog standard guards. Most importantly, they will recognize other agents. Uh, so if they see your agents, uh, an enemy agent, unlike a guard, will be like, wait, that person, that person's a spy. Um, so you do have to watch for that. But actually, they're not that aggressive on their patrols, and they're not that hard to avoid, even when they are patrolling. And meanwhile, nothing else happens. So the game sort of gestures at this idea of okay, your stealth is eroding, right? Like, you, you keep, like, you know, picking people off or, or knocking them out, but people are getting wise to what's going on here, and the facility is going into lockdown. It's not really. The game is telling you, like, yep, people are alerted. No, they're not really. The, the facility is not on lockdown. It doesn't, it doesn't have that state programmed into it. All that's happening is enemy agents are walking around rather than just, like, standing, staring at a wall. As you as you say, enemies don't move between rooms unless they they enter that kind of yellow alert state you're describing, which I think is an issue. Speaking of vision cones, uh, I don't know if you had this really weird circumstance, but I walked into a room, a bunker apparently full of scientists, and they were doing their research. One was, one guy was looking out the window, and I started hovering over them to see like what are my targets, like who can I hit, uh, how can I get around this. I thought I'd get a really interesting combat challenge, but no. <laughs> First of all, breaking glass doesn't break stealth, so you can just hurdle through a glass window, and nobody will think that's a mess. Um, second, you can just judo chop a person, and they'll be right next to another person, but because they're not within the vision cone, they won't notice. You can just judo chop people in a line. Uh, and stash the bodies and do next turn, next turn, next turn, and nothing happens. When we're talking about optimal situations and curveballs, I hate to keep bringing up Hard West, but, I mean, you did say it was overdue. Um, because those scenarios and missions were more authored, you and they knew where, what state you were in and uh, the various variables attached to your character, um, you would often be thrown into impossible situations. you got to rescue this person within this many turns. you got... You're surrounded on all sides. If you stay where you are, you're going to die. Run for cover. Um, the wild, it, it took the Wild West as a series of moments that could be more made more incredible and strange and unique by adding a whole bunch of weird crap. And we think of the Cold War and Cold War conflicts in a similar way, looking at someone who might be an, an enemy agent across from you and there's a gun on the table and you're thinking, like, do you dart for it? Do you not? But because of the more systems-driven design, those climactic moments aren't actually revealed through the gameplay. Um, um, 
Um, oh gosh, unlike Hard West, which took system, something which could be more systems driven and made it more authored, uh, and thereby made something strange and weird and cool. Um, Phantom Doctrine took something which relies heavily on specifically engineered moments and trusts the systems to make it happen somehow, somewhere. Yeah, and, and, and I think what's really lacking are for those big payoff moments. You know, it should it should be in theory a massive payoff, a massive surprise when, you know, when you turn an enemy agent agent into an ally. So this is something you can do by going onto a mission, knocking them out, you know, picking them up, getting them safely to the extraction point. Right, that in and of itself is a, an amount of sacrifice and time. You put them into your interrogation facility. You say, okay, I'm gonna brainwash you so that you know, I'm gonna you know, when I encounter you in another mission in this kind of systems-driven world, I can flip a switch and then you become my combat friend, basically. So you go through all that work and you do that, and it's just another ability on the hotkey menu. There's no sound effect. There's no kind of musical stinger. There's no like dun-dun-dun, right? Of like, you spent all this effort. And, and in any like James Bond film, you know, pick your spy franchise, like this will be the huge reveal, right? There's no camera movement. There's nothing to kind of let you know you did something really special. Um, so I just felt like that was a really underwhelming part of the game. Now, just to go back to the combat real quickly, I'm curious what you guys felt about, you know, when when the base went on full alert. Because I do think it, the game at least does manage to sort of let, let things get out of hand in a pretty fun and interesting way. I mean, um, once the reinforcements start showing up, I don't know if you guys had any interesting encounters with um, ear strikes in the game, which are eventually a thing that you have to manage. But there are moments where I, I genuinely felt overwhelmed and, and sort of in the style of, you know, the spy genre and spy films, you're like, I am not a soldier. I am not, you know, uh, a military, you know, tactical ops team. I'm a dude in a suit who's been sent into this, into this, you know, I'm on the third story of a facility. I need to get to the bottom floor and fight my way through, you know, dozens of, military now um and, and sorting through that felt unfair in a way that was refreshing frankly uh i would say i've i had a lot of pretty dull missions like they did fall into some patterns but i did have a couple that like the procedural level layouts in some places and the uh just the just the pacing of the of of the way the reinforcements came in and where they're coming in from came together in such a way that I had some really tremendous missions. Now, now that I think about it, those might've actually been bespoke missions though. Well, at least one of them for sure is a plot mission. I'm not sure about the other one, uh, but there is. All right. So why did these missions work? Why do they stand out? Um, so I think one of the reasons, going back to wh why is so much of this game bland, is that I think it's a game that encourages you to save scum because a lot of the ways in which it goes wrong do not feel fun or interesting or good. And a big part of that is line of sight rules, um, which combine with the 100% hit chance to produce some really weird counterintuitive outcomes. Uh, and the developers posted an explainer for how line of sight works in this game. Uh, because very quickly, I started seeing, like, 
agents were getting flanked and just murdered from impossible angles. Things that, like, there was no way I could have foreseen that somebody on a ground floor of a warehouse would look up and somehow peer through a door frame along a wall through two panes of glass and like headshot an agent. This is familiar. Yeah. And like, there's just no, like there's, I couldn't, you can't parse them out that way. You can't read that. It's a tactics game that because of this rule is fundamentally unreadable. Now in XCOM, maybe that shot exists, but it's like a 5% hit chance. So your intuitive sense that your agent is screened is utterly fine. That will, that will get the job done in this. If that agent is seen and somehow through this weird line of sight tracking in this angle, um, that will be, that could be uh, a flanked, devastating, like max damage attack. And there's no way for you to read that. And one reason for that is because for the purposes of their line of sight calculations, both shooter and target are assumed to be not only in the square they occupy, but in the adjacent squares around them, in the in the four cardinal direction squares around them. So, yeah. So, Zalavir, if you are, like, hunched behind a doorframe, taking cover, you are assumed, when somebody shoots at you, to also be in the doorway. That's, and that's, yeah, that it, it makes no sense. Doing that is this because of the awareness mechanic? Like, oh, n- you got no, shot is, near... It's sort of like, it's the assumption that the, the character is sort of moving in and out of that position a little bit. They're moving to, like, you're in a doorway, you're checking around that doorway, which would mean that you're, vis- you're yeah. visible. That's kind of the explanation, right. as I understand XCOM it. XCOM works this way. Like, when you're behind a, a tree or something, people can still shoot at you, even though you're behind cover. But they're shooting at a penalty because you have the full cover bonus, and it, hit, it affects the to-hit chance. In this game, no. That shot's going to hit. Um, and yeah, so you get some weird, it makes it very hard to parse. And they're like, a lot of tactics games do this. It's more noticeable in ours because there's so many complicated interior environments that begin to create these really weird outcomes. So because the game operates this way, I found it really encouraged me, uh, to just start saves coming a lot because the, like the sheer number of times that something completely perverse would happen uh, I just I, I couldn't handle it. Uh, maybe maybe this game would be a little more uh, have more satisfying variants if I if I Iron Maned it. But mm. Mm, given how hard it is to predict how this game works, I, I, I hesitate to do so. But the missions that work for me, I'll just, I'll wrap this up. The cool thing about this system is that in those when your agents have the drop on the enemy. They can clean house. They can massacre the enemy. They're, they're better shots. They're, they're deadlier. Um, but when the numbers begin to go against you, you start to realize, like, oh, shit, like, the numbers are becoming an issue. Like, my awareness is not recharging. I'm not dodging these shots anymore. I am getting chipped down. I am getting overrun. And I can't put these guys down fast enough to stay ahead of the curve. Uh, and so I had a few missions that did have that sort of cascade effect where it's like by the middle of the mission I already had some badly wounded agents and then the reinforcements started showing up and I had like one really great like hospital shootout um, that was giving me like flashbacks to the hospital shootout in Jagged Alliance 2 for Christ's sake like 
it was just this completely uh, nuts uh, gun battle in this really well-realized, well-dressed hospital setting um, that culminated in fully half my team carrying the other half of my team out to the extraction point, putting bodies down, like propping them against walls so they could lean out and like shoot down more guards that were coming at them. Like it was the most like fucking, you know, Mark Knopfler brothers in arms starting to play as my agents <laughs> or like firemen carrying their guys to the extraction. And I was like, shit, you got me. Like I am, I'm all in at this uh, moment. I, th- I think that's, you raise a really interesting question about uh, map design, like in terms of, uh, turn-based strategy games kind of tend to suffer when you're inside buildings. Phantom Doctrine is one of the few that I've played where, oh, actually, if you're trying to do stealth stuff, stuff inside a building, it works. Everything looks neat on an environment perspective, even if the characters are underwhelming. Um, these are well-realized places. These are very skillful people. I think they just put their trust in the wrong areas as far as what would make their game um exciting uh inherently yeah you know not to not to underestimate the amount of effort that already would in the went in the phantom doctrine but also how difficult it would be to implement what i'm about to say i feel like this game <laughs> go ahead evan just how lazy <laughs> oh, are these devs? this game could learn a lot from 80 days and it could learn a lot from fire emblem right so marry our spies <laughs> for real <laughs> <laughs> like think about the comp- the the interesting stuff i mean th- there's already there's there's like the groundwork is laid for interesting interactions between characters and like cool emergent system you know events emerging from these systems um one of your spies can betray you and then you have to like hunt them down and kill them in the campaign they don't say anything to you when that happens they don't like you know when you encounter them again there's no like dialogue or like so we meet again you know or like you know that's just natural stuff to put in there. Um, also, one other thing you mentioned is that uh, agents were underwhelming in general. Can you sort of elaborate on how that ties into this overall issue you're seeing in terms of uh, the relations of agents between each other as well? For sure. I mean, Rob brought up Rob brought up like one of his characters was a, was a Vietnam veteran, which I think is actually a it's a perk or something that uh, I forget what it allows you to do. I think it has to do with the Overwatch actually. It makes their Overwatch um, like a, a, yeah, a sphere or something. Cone, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, but there's there's so little kind of tools even given to you to distinguish your characters. Um, there's no skill tree. These perks that we're talking about are actually random. When you level up, you get a random selection of four, and they're not tiered in any way that I noticed. So the game makes it practically impossible for you to build interesting specialists. You know, I, I can't really build a sniper character in this game. I can't build a melee specialist, really. I, you know, there may be a couple of perks I could accidentally pick up. Um, and in addition to that, there's there's a room you unlock eventually where you're, boost, you're, you're boosting the stats of your characters by injecting them with these, like, very realistic-sounding drug compounds. <laughs> but... And some of them, you know, some of them will boost your your awareness and your and your hit points. Some of them, at the expense of like your your motor skills or like your move your movement um, yeah. and stuff like that. And there are these kind of trade offs, but like the system is built in such a way that 
like you're you're like plugging your characters full of drugs and so like well sure i'll take these upgrades because a they're really cheap and b they happen almost instantaneously but there's no like your your character can't get addicted to them you know there's no like kind of weird fun narrative stuff there and, and there's that's such ripe territory right like what if what if your character runs away because you injected them with too many drugs because you wanted to make them powerful you know because there is like the most interesting part of this game are, are, is like one of the smallest parts of it, which are these random events that come up in the metagame. You know, these are these do represent kind of to me like uh, choose your own adventure style little pop ups. You know, these little micro stories that are handed to you. Where, oh, you know, in, in one instance, um, my character used to do heists, and you know, they got invited to go on one last job with with their group. Do I let them? You know, kind of have this fun, even though it might be dangerous, or or don't I? Right, and, and that's like. That's the stuff that comes the closest to characterizing who these people are and their backgrounds and their um, just kind of what you do with them. But it's so fleeting ultimately, and it, and it so rarely has permanent impact that um, it just doesn't really feel like it, that stuff sticks, unfortunately. Weapons are doing a lot of heavy lifting in this system that I do not think they should be doing. Like a major part of what, like, your characters don't have classes. What they have are weapon proficiencies. But the problem is that, like, there's it's a completely unintuitive system. Like, it, it may, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's like, well, your character's good with this machine pistol, but, like, so they get some special, like, uh, bonuses when they use this weapon and a couple abilities. But they, for whatever reason, they're not going to be good with the very similar submachine gun, the MAC-10, for instance. No, and how does that square with the game that's so heavily focused on melee and things that aren't shooting people as well? Well, once the once the shooting starts, everybody's blazing away. Like once you go loud, it's an all shooting all the all the time game. Um, and I didn't find much incentive to try to not be stealth. Like, uh, well, also silencers completely changed the game too. Uh, once I had a lot of silencers, um, I just had undercover agents roving around the map with like uh mac 10 submachine guns with giant silencers attached to them and just like murdering people uh right and left and like it was fine uh but it doesn't it doesn't it, it neither feels it's fussy like the thing to manage like you gotta be like well okay which which of these four or five proficiencies match up to a weapon i have in my inventory so you got to play that game before every mission. But what it boils down to in its essence is you have like four agents on this mission, each of whom might be proficient with a different submachine gun. All those submachine guns feel functionally identical. Tactically will function the exact same way. Um, and it just, it makes for a really weird thing. Like across the board with the perks, with the weapon proficiencies, there are a ton of little things to manage. This is a game of marginal differences that you have to somehow, like, that, that the game wants you to think about, but really, if, if I'm being honest, if I didn't match the agent with, their, with the correct weapon, it made very little difference. It's a huge misopportunity that there is an interesting spy gadgetry in this game. You know, eventually you are unlocking stuff like proximity mines. I never found a good use for them. Um, 
but but there's no interesting kind of utility gear here. I mean, you have like flash grenades and smoke grenades and kind of really basic stuff, but nothing that allows you to do kind of you know parallel tactics um, with stealth and non-combat. So like you're saying, Rob, it, it's absolutely true that the guns are doing a lot of heavy, heavy lifting, but at the same time, the guns don't have a lot of identity themselves. You know, it doesn't, doesn't really mean a lot when you have a big sniper rifle versus an assault rifle. They're, they're kind of roughly the same thing, again, because most of the guns have practically infinite range with the exception of like shotguns and pistols and stuff like that. And, you know, because percentage to hit isn't a thing. So some, some, I don't know. I, I admire that they tried something different, right? I, I can definitely say that, but I'm not sure that it panned out uh, in the competition. I think that one area in which, if anything, I wanted more detail was the investigation board. I don't know what y'all's mm. experience was like with that, but we keep talking about marginal differences, micromanaging, um, things underwhelming here and there uh, alongside competent, if disappointing, uh, other sections, but the investigation board ostensibly like the opportunity if they wanted to go lo-fi i can understand if they didn't want to go the mission possible ghost protocol route of super spy gadgetry where you suddenly have like that fake wall screen as much as i would have loved that being something akin to that or that vibe being in this game if they just wanted to go lo-fi spy gadgetry and intrigue i thought that investigation board would be where they did it but instead we got set dressing Connect the dots, highlight a couple of words. Well, it's really weird. So I find that stuff really strange. Um, because at first I thought, okay, they're just using some sort of espionage Mad Libs system here. Where it's <laughs> like, okay, and then Yuri Andropov worked with the SAS to talk to, <laughs> you know, Project... Wintergreen or something like yeah. that. Procedurally generated code name number seven. Right. At first, I thought that's what was happening. And it mostly is, except that there are enough characters who recur across these investigations and tie into the plot line that it starts to like dawn on you that, like, wait, no, there are some like plot details that are being sketched out in these investigation boards. Memos like, you know. I swear to God, I swear to God, Grigori, if you keep going down this road, you keep asking about Beholder, something bad is going to happen to you. Like, cool stuff like that that is beginning to fill in some of the backstory of the world. It's this mix of, like, random, like, search the document for the magic word, and it's completely, like, fill in the blank. And then there are places where it feels like they're trying to put in exposition. And they're trying to sketch out, like, a fictional world here. But that fictional world makes no fucking sense. I don't know what happens in this game. Like, genu like, genuinely, I do not know what happens in this game. Like, I can give you rough outlines. You start out as a government agency. You start to realize your, your bosses are compromised. The Beholder Initiative is out there. You have to go rogue. Why, who, wherefore, mm, couldn't tell you. Yeah, it, I would say that the the story it avoids being convoluted like some kind of amateur spy stories do, which which is a good thing. But but good spy stories are convoluted too. They lost the convolutedness. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it, you know, we I guess we didn't mention at the outset. Yeah, you can you can pick between being a KGB or a CIA operative. CIA operative, X. You know, that's your, like your former job. And actually, after you finish the campaign, you can do New Game Plus as Mossad. 
um, huh. like an Israeli agent. And those all kind of have their unique prologue that feeds into the shared, like generalized storyline, at least. Um, yeah, back to this um, conspiracy board mechanic. You know, if, if you have trouble visualizing what we're talking about here, it's it's literally, you know, yarn connected scraps of paper on the wall and maps and, and stuff like that. You know, the material itself doesn't really mean anything often. You know, sometimes it does have like story influence or there's an actual payoff to completing one of these that p- actually pushes the story forward. Um, yeah, typically you're happy. It's, it's a word matching game. Like if we're, if we're being really reductive, but for me, I actually enjoyed the, just the gesture of pushing stuff around, like my mm-hmm. eyes kind of scanning across all these words, some, some of which I knew had relationships, some of which are like sort of red herrings and just the gesture of, again, kind of moving these papers left to right, arranging them. I did feel like I was sort of engaged in, you know, being in my base and like looking through scraps of paper. And um, I also appreciated that could, I, you can actually ignore this area of the game entirely and automate it by assigning agents in your base to just do it for you much more slowly. But it, it could, they can at least handle it if, uh, if you found it distasteful. Can, can I, correct me if I'm wrong, but can you make an incorrect guess? No. No, there's no, there's no like failure. Um, so, and, and that's one area where it really fell through for me because like it's very convincing set dressing. I also enjoyed the tactile feel of it. It's very well depicted and realized. But as soon as you start getting into that thing and you realize, oh, if I highlight the wrong word, it isn't going to mean that I do an incorrect guess and I uh, suspect one of my own agents and it turned out they were good all along. And later on, I find out, oh crap, because I misinterpreted this document i actually ended up shooting up one of my best agents no it's just that's a really good point like what if what if there were strong relationships between these systems because as it stands they're pretty disintegrated from each other one of my one of the best examples of this there's kind of there's kind of one resource in the game like you can tell you can tell like your character's a resource and like your items and stuff like that but money it, it is the crafting material it is what you use to by agents, it is what you use to move your base once once your base is sort of exposed to the enemy. And how do you make money? Well, you, you just make it. You forge it yourself in a facility. You just you say, I'm gonna assign two agents to do this, and you just accumulate it passively over time. There's no other way of like, okay, there are like upgrades to allow you to increase the rate of that that you just sort of buy again with the money. When do you get the, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just like when you get into the choice, the, 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 the choice narrative specifically that was like, hey, you're going to let your uh, guy do one last heist. Did that give you a money benefit? Was there any connection between that system at all? Mm. Yeah, there are some of those. Some of those stories do provide you cash or, or sometimes you have to spend money in order to like, so some one of them was like, this guy wants to go train somewhere and like he'll, he'll level up if you do that for him. Or you have to, yeah, you have to pay to bribe somebody or to quiet somebody's spouse who wants to share their identity or something like that. Sure. But it's again, it's all pulled out of the same pool. And I never felt like um it was that sparse or I was forced into like some really hard decisions as a result of that. I, I like what I wanted was, you know, what's it called? Nextcom Ethereum or something, right? Like, you know, I'm just thinking of the cryptocurrency now. God. Uh, is it called No, Ethereum? Illyrium. Oh, Illyrium, God. Yeah. Wow, thank you. So, you know, I wanted something like that. There's sort of at least one extra layer where 
I have to make a choice in a mission. Like, do I go for the secondary objective because it's going to help me back on my base? Like, that's just the simplest design to me. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're like we're really poking at some some tough balance and tuning here that that could have been better. But what I what what I'm really interested in hearing from you guys is like, are there good ideas here that should be built upon in the future? Right? Like, is the spy genre and turn-based strategy with like stealth and with betrayal like? Is there something there for you guys, or, or does it does it deserve further exploration? Well, I mean, hell yes! Like <laughs> it was, it's we it was weird timing playing this game because um, while I was playing this game, I finally got around to finishing the Americans, um, which oh shit, yeah, right, which also like unfair comparison, like literally. One of the big days that, like, a day where I put, like, eight hours into this game was also the day I spent, like, four hours watching the end of The Americans. Um, And so I went from, like, these amazing scenes of, like, people confessing all to their Cold War adversaries, very, um, you know, John John McCarr type stuff, uh, to a game that looks and sounds a lot like what I want a spy game to look and sound like. Um, set dressing again, uh, you know, very good theming, but it doesn't carry it off, but it comes close enough in so many ways that I can't help but look at all these systems, all these things that break down and like, it's like the investigation board stuff. It doesn't quite work in this game, but it makes me imagine a version of that mechanic that totally works and is awesome and is like narratively rich. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's that far away is the wild thing. You know, like I think the frustrating thing about Phantom Doctrine, the reason it is so hard to dial in your reaction to this game is that it's not a complete failure. It's not a complete miss. It's that it comes close enough on every single one of these points that you can kind of see like, Oh, imagine if that just worked better. That'd be awesome. But it never quite gets to that. Uh, and so Phantom Doctrine is a game where, like, every minute I was playing it, playing it, it re- was reminding me of a better game that doesn't exist and that nobody's made yet. Mm. Yeah, because I, I, I don't think that Invisible Ink is quite the solution either. It's a very different type of me- very mechanical challenge. But the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy lo-fi espionage um where talking your way out of situations is as valid a solution or judo chopping your way out of of scenarios is as important as shooting him um yeah i I think that's a game i want to play i think there's seeds of that game here that uh, if anything will hopefully point away towards uh, the same developer or another developer making that happen yeah because I agree. I mean, even with all the criticism we've levied at, you know, the balancing, and I think most of cases here, it's still one of the best spy games in in the entire industry, you know, that you can buy right now, along with stuff like Alpha Protocol. And what does that tell you? So, like, over the yeah. past 10 years, and yeah, Invisible Ink is definitely up there, too, but I, I think of that much, it's it's much more focused and it's very tightly designed and balanced in, in a way that reminds me of, I guess, more like puzzle-oriented strategy games. Um, rather than like campaign games with um, that are more driven by their systems, in my mind. But anyway, yeah, like I think we're so underserved in this genre, right? Like it's it's a huge area of fiction, 
and yet um, developers seem either hesitant on it or I don't know what the explanation is. But yeah, I think Phantom Doctrine really proved to me that it is fertile territory that I hope somebody runs with. And you know what, Evan, I think you touched on it perfectly earlier. We need to be able to have our spies marry each other. If we don't have a Mr. and Mrs. Smith of video games within the next five years, I'm out of this industry. <laughs> or at least be able to seduce somebody. Like that's such a classic thematic thing. Um, yeah. Like you're, like you're saying, you know, there's just the amount of verbs that you have with your spies and kind of your, your management of your secret cabal is so limited um, even within kind of as the spy genre itself defines them. So Plenty more territory to explore here. Yeah, I think um, one reason that this game struggles is because, and you were sort of alluding this to this uh, earlier, Zalavir, where it's kind of a um, they're putting their faith in procedural elements to carry this, and like some of the stuff needs to be tailored. Like there need to be like more event chains, like like. That story you told at the beginning, Evan, like more of that stuff where like there are nuances in the illusion of personal relationships happening uh, in, in these games where you have to. Because I, I think it's very tough to create a system that somehow evokes the uncertainty and suspicion and paranoia and grief of a Tinker Tailor. Right. Like that is all that is that is all ambiguity. That's not that, that that's not resolution tables and dice rolls that is just all humanity all human elements and all just trying to sort of perceive the truth of a person's character uh the truth of their motivations and that's something that i think if you're trying to create a universal like system for that you're going to fail but if you create like a shitload of event chains that can go different ways you might come close to evoking that thing. Um, I don't know. Somebody, somebody asked me on Twitter, like if I thought this game was um, unsalvageable, which uh, it already like I had too pleasant a time with it to say like, it's unsalvageable. Like, mm. like it's, it's still worth taking a look at. Uh, but where I've sort of come away with it is I'm not even sure. Like, a lot of what bothers me here feels like it could be tuned differently and this game would be a lot better than it is. Um, I don't know. It's this game does not feel like a lost cause by any, by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think in some places it's really close. It's knocking on the door. And then there are other places where there are elements of this effort that just don't work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Evan is do you think this game is served well by the experience of trying to review it? Like, let me put it this way. I played a lot of this game in a compressed time frame to a point where it began to feel like a burden. Like those random missions, rescue this informer, rescue that. I just started to feel like I'm ready for this to be done. Um, and I kind of wonder if it hadn't been in that, like, Oh, play 20 hours of this. Uh, you know, in, in five days, if it hadn't been that mold, would the repetition have been so grinding? You know what I mean? Like, would it have, would this have been as frustrating an experience? Um, cause I think for me, I definitely kind of felt like 
that sort of bland pleasantness that defined a lot of my experience with the game was really kind of crushed to death by just the the compression of playing it for review. Hmm. I had a little more time than you, and I yeah. think I had the same set of feelings, but for a different reason. I think attrition becomes a problem in the game, so there is not a lot of mission variety, for one thing. Yeah. Um, it's it's basically what, like, kill this enemy agent on a map, um, rescue um, uh, sort of an NPC character from the map, or kill every enemy on this on this map and then there's like a set of story missions that have like little variations like you know sabotage the submarine you know walk up to a, a place on the map mission. and press a button so there's that issue but on the global map itself when you're not in these combat missions it's a lot of whack-a-mole pun intended i guess like you're you're Okay, there's a you know there's there's some sort of alert in Asia. I gotta I gotta send my agent there, and there's like they're actually traveling, as you know, in, in like a plausible system where you're sending them on these flights and you're watching them progress. And okay, if I send two agents there and there's actually something to deal with, I can interrupt an enemy's operation and actually have to you know completely skip going on the combat missions or sort of cancel out their activity. Um, so you're getting all these kind of alerts and notifications. Um, and it's endless, you know. It's 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 all you can eat. Like you can you can just keep going in that system and keep going on missions and keep going on missions until you decide to go on a story mission and, and press the game forward. That that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. It said um, that you can basically between story missions, you can spend as much time building up as possible. Is there any downside to loitering? Uh, your heat goes up basically, um, but. Also, time will solve that problem, too, because as your danger level goes up, uh, sorry, it's not heat, it's danger level, uh, there's a chance your base becomes exposed, and you have to move the base. But also, over time, you'll forge more money, and so it comes out in the wash. Like, this game will let you spin your wheels, and in general, you'll probably build up resources uh, for spinning your wheels and not really be punished. Hmm. You can you can run the clock, um, probably too much in this game, way too much. Like, cause I I think one thing that got like sort of bit me, and the reason the prologue seemed so long, is I kept kind of waiting for the game to nudge me, in like a direction, and no, it wasn't going to. Like, I eventually just had to start being like, okay, just go straight to the mission marker, like just keep moving. Yeah, there isn't, you know. So you accumulate this, you know, this, um, you accumulate danger, which is sort of a negative bar that fills on, on the global map. And, you know, if it fills, there's a risk that your base could be raided and you lose a bunch of resources and money. And it's, you know, has this negative effect and uh, a, a bunch of your agents will have their heat set to 100. It's bad, but it's not a failure state. Um, there isn't that there isn't this kind of like true pressure and you know for toward a game over state that games like XCOM gives you on the global map where you have to feel like you have to balance developing your base versus sort of tamping down uh, the opponent's progress on this sort of uh, research project yeah again it's another element that almost works mm, not quite not quite yeah like Phantom Doctrine, I think it's a game that 
Troy uses this phrase a lot. Uh, you know, there there are bad games and there are noble failures. I think Phantom Doctrine belongs in the latter category. Um, mm. And there are places it comes damn close to, to to pulling it off. And the charm and appeal of the uh, of the theme, the music, the the uh, you know overall aesthetic should not be underestimated. But neither should the repetition. Uh, it's kind of where where I've where I've come down with this game. Anyway, that will that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Before we go, um, Evan, uh, you have a review up a piece of gamer, correct? I do. All right, so we will be linking that in the show notes. Uh, and Zalvir, where can people uh, follow your work online? They can follow my work at at w r i t rit nelson on Twitter. Uh, I text about college and about media analysis and about hard west now i guess i really want to play hard west right now it is detrimental to my schedule to play hard west but i'm hovering over the download button so i guess that tells you how this went i'm uh i kind of want to give hard west a try now i also kind of want to reinstall gunslinger um so uh sorry call a call a juarez uh gunslinger i i I should Ah, say yeah um a game that I, I think is a, a criminally underappreciated shooter. Uh, but that's just me. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Three Moves Out is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. We'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, uh, for Evan, for Zolivier, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.